Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Today's podcast is from a sermon series I did on the Gospel of Luke. I hope you enjoy. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have a world where we could have our cake and eat it too? Uh, When we don't get that kind of a world, we kind of get upset. And what we're going to see in the life of Jesus as we study the Gospel of Luke is He's going to come in and He's going to wreck our world. Uh, We want a Jesus that fits our our preferences, that fits the things that we want, that fits the things we like. And Jesus isn't about having that. He's about saying, I'm the King of Kings and I'm the Lord of Lords and this is the way the Kingdom of God works. And we have to conform to that. So we're continuing to ask the question of who is this man, but more importantly, what is he, what's his message? What's he telling us? What does he want us to do? My name is Rob Darnapal. I'm the pastor here at Northminster, and it's wonderful to see you all. I, have, I mentioned a little bit ago that uh, uh, we have uh, a historic faith uh, as Presbyterians that we're a part of, and what that means is that we have these confessions and creeds that have come about at various moments in time uh, and they're often uh, related to a particular moment in time, but they, but they uh, reflect for us the historic beliefs of the church. Uh, the, the, these creeds and these confessions are not scripture for us. Uh, we're not bound by everything they say. We may not agree with certain things in this one or in that one, but overall, they reflect for us well the historic beliefs of the Christian faith. Uh, one of those uh, creeds, uh, that essentially is universally accepted by Christians, whether you're Catholic or Protestant or, or, or uh, Orthodox, etc., is the Nicene Creed. And, and very briefly, before we read the Nicene Creed together, let me mention the context of this creed. This creed was written in the year 325 A.D., about almost 300 years after the death of Jesus Christ. And it was at the, at the time of Nicaea, which is a city in modern-day Turkey, uh, an ancient city in modern-day Turkey, uh, a, a man had come along in the church a number of years earlier had began to argue that Jesus Christ himself was not actually equal with God the Father. He began to question and undermine what we call the doctrine of the Trinity, that, the, that there's one God who eternally exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, this was actually the first time historically that someone had actually challenged this core doctrine of the faith. Uh, some skeptics will say, you know, it wasn't until 325 that the Christians affirmed the doctrine of the Trinity. It's like, no, it wasn't until 325 that someone challenged the doctrine of the Trinity. And because someone challenged it, the church responded with a, with a, with a, with a meeting, a gathering of all the bishops, 318 bishops from around the Roman world, many of them, by the way, who had come without an eye or without a leg or with burn marks and scars because the Roman Empire had just persecuted Christians severely less than 15 years earlier. And now, Constantine, the Roman Emperor, is bringing these Christians from around the world together to the city of Nicaea, and they affirm what we call the Nicene Creed. Jesus Christ is Lord of Lord and God of God and King of Kings. And so here's this historic creed. Now there's one line in the creed that says, uh, you know, uh, he, um, uh, let's see, uh, um, uh, uh, he, uh, uh, well, you know what? I won't worry about it. I think we'll be all right. So if you'll say the Nicene Creed with me as we, as we look up on the screen. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, 
begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through Him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, He came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. For our sake, He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, He rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and His kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. All right, and the one line I was looking for is the phrase, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. The word Catholic means universal. So it's not affirming the Roman church per se, it's affirming the one universal church. Suppose one of your grandkids came up and uh, 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 from memory quoted John 3.16. Maybe six years old, they come forward and they, they begin, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish. And then they went down and we all said, oh, that was so awesome, that was great, wow, you know, what, that's amazing, I remember when that child was just, was just born and she's only six years old, she's doing a great job. Now, you may have noticed that the child didn't seem to actually finish the verse, because it doesn't end with, they shall not perish, but there's another line there, but that's okay, we kind of let it go, we all clap and we go on our way. Jesus walks into a synagogue in the Gospel of Luke chapter 4 in the city of Nazareth. Luke 4 verse 14 and it says this. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about Him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised Him. Note that carefully. Everyone praised Him. He went to Nazareth where He had been brought up and on the Sabbath day He went into the synagogue as was His custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to Him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. Next slide. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you'll quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we heard that you did in Capernaum. And truly I tell you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut up for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land and yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. 
They got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff, but he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Something happened here. Because at the beginning, they were speaking well of him. They were excited. This is Joseph's kid, but by the end, they want to throw him off the cliff. Now, synagogues in the ancient world were houses of instruction. Uh, synagogues are not the equivalent of a church for, us, for our sakes today. They're houses of instruction. Churches are places of worship. For an Israelite, the temple was the place of worship. So in the Old Testament period, the time before Jesus, uh, there, there were no synagogues because it was a temple, and all Israelites were expected to go to the temple regularly. Once, however, you get to the Old Testament history where the Babylonians and Assyrians have come in and conquered the Israelites and sent them away, now they need local gathering places in Rome and Ephesus and Babylon and Nineveh, uh, uh, and up even in the northern part of Galilee, like Capernaum, etc., and Nazareth. So now there are synagogues where local gathering places of Israel, and they're a house of instruction primarily, a, a school for the kids, but also a place of fellowship for the community. So they get together, as Luke 4 says, uh, uh, as was his custom, Jews goes into the synagogue uh, in the city of Nazareth. Now Nazareth, if you have a slide, James, uh, Nazareth is located up in the northern Galilee here. And what I want you to notice is there's a little mountainous outcropping where the city of Nazareth is kind of like in the middle of it. There's a little bowl right here. Uh, Nazareth may have been 400 people at the most at the time of Jesus. What I want you to notice is this beautiful valley down here called the Jezreel Valley, and it stretches all the way to the Jordan River. And if you're up in Nazareth, this valley is going to be about 900 feet below you which means it's not feasible for you to live in Nazareth and work in the valley down below, where the fields are and the agriculture are. I mean, Nazareth is a small little community. It's a poor, podunk little town in the middle of nowhere. Due north of Nazareth is the city of Cana. Cana is built right up against these hillsides, but notice Cana is right on the edge of this nice little fertile valley. Some of you might be familiar with a man in, uh, named Nathaniel in the Gospel of John who hears about Jesus of Nazareth and he's the Messiah. And, and Nathaniel goes, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Uh, Nazareth was like, it, it's like, it's, it's a nothing town. Um, Cana is a, a beautiful city with a fertile valley there. Would you, and Nazareth is up here. And, and James, go ahead and go to the next picture here. Uh, this now shows you the, the rocky outcropping, perhaps the one they wanted to throw Jesus off. Uh, and it shows you the Jezreel Valley down below. Uh, you can't work down there, though. It, it's not feasible to go down there, work for the day, and come back. So this is now, and, and it's rocks up there. It's a, it's a podunk little town in the middle of nowhere. Now, a synagogue service uh, began by having uh, the Shema recited. The, the next slide, James. Uh, a, a synagogue, uh, the Shema. The Shema is a Hebrew word that means here. And it's the first word of Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9, that all synagogue services will begin with. Hear, O Israel... The Lord your God is one. And you shall love the Lord. And so they would go on and they would recite the Shema from the book of Deuteronomy. And the next thing that they would do is they would have some prescribed prayers, a time of prayer during the synagogue worship. And then thirdly, they would read the scriptures. Now, when they read the scriptures, they would begin by reading something from what's called the Torah. The Torah are the first five books of the Old Testament. So they start with the Shema, then they have prayers, and then someone will get up and read a portion from the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy. Then someone else would get up and read from the books of the prophets, maybe from Isaiah, or maybe even 1 Samuel, or maybe from uh, Daniel. Or they, they would read another portion of the Scriptures. Now, when the Scriptures are read, 
They're read in Hebrew. The scrolls are written in Hebrew. That's the language of the Old Testament world. The problem is, is that no Jewish people at this time know Hebrew. Now, it's the same alphabet, so you can kind of read it, but you don't know what it means. So what they would do is someone else would now come up and they would recite the scriptures in Aramaic. But this is very important now. The scriptures are in Hebrew, and that is to be read. When the person comes up to do in Aramaic and kind of give a paraphrase of the scriptures, they cannot be seen reading. Lest you confuse the Aramaic that I'm giving you now with the Hebrew scriptures themselves. So when they come up and do it in Aramaic, they would often add words and add phrases, similar to like what the Message Bible might be like today, where it's kind of paraphrasing it and making it in modern-day Hebrew or modern-day Aramaic. And oftentimes, by the way, they would actually add a whole lot to it. So you might read the scriptures and it might take you 30 seconds and the Aramaic might take like three minutes because they're just expounding upon the particular passage. The next thing that would happen then would be someone would come up and give a word of instruction. Now the problem with that is, is that if you're in the city of Nazareth, you don't have anybody in town that can give you a word of instruction. You get 400 people here and there's no one qualified to give you a word of instruction. Uh, if you read the scriptures, you might see the, the ruler of the synagogue. That's the custodian. Every synagogue had a synagogue ruler, and he's the one that made sure the building was open and, and closed, and made sure it was picked up and tidied and the trash was emptied. He had no training and wasn't going to give you words of instruction. But if a man like Jesus were coming into town, the town of his birth, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus, would you give us a word of instruction? They would be privileged to have a rabbi like Jesus give a word of instruction. Now, in the, in the Gospel of Luke that we just read, it says that, that, that when, he, um, when Jesus went up to give a word of instruction, it says he found the place in the book of Isaiah. He, he asked for the Isaiah scroll to be handed to him. He finds the place, and then he reads from the book of Isaiah, the passage that, that uh, Taylor read earlier. Isaiah chapter 61. Now, now, some of you may have heard this story before, and, and the idea that it just so happened that they were reading the book of Isaiah that day, and Jesus says, hey, here's what the passage means. I don't think that's the case. He has to ask for the Isaiah scroll. He receives the scroll, and then he opens it up. Now, by the way, we, we found a copy of the book of Isaiah in the Dead Sea Scrolls, if you've heard of that discovery. One particular scroll, the entire scroll, was a copy of the book of Isaiah, and it was 24 feet long. Now, there are no chapter breaks, there are no chapter titles, there are no biblical numbers. So to open it to Isaiah 61, verse, it's going to take you a while to find it. So they open up to Isaiah 61, Jesus reads the scriptures. And then he proclaims today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. The final thing that happens then will be a benediction. And then they will go on their way. So Luke chapter 4, I think that's the next slide, James, says, uh, verse 14 again, Jesus returned to Galilee. In the power of the Spirit, and the news about him spread to the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Now, skip down to verse 21 now. He began saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, and all spoke well of him. They were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. Okay, now, let's set the context here. There's 400 people in the city of Nazareth. Half of them are probably related to Jesus. It's a city of his birth. It's not a city of his birth, but a city where Joseph and Mary were from. There's cousins, there's relatives, there's aunts, there's uncles, there's maybe grandparents. He's well known in this city, and they're, they're amazed. They're speaking well of him. I can't believe it. Who would ever have thought 
that the prophecy of Isaiah is going to be filled by one of us. Uh, someone from Nazareth, a town nobody likes, nobody respects. We've got the Messiah in our city? Note, the fill, first fill in the blank is that everyone was speaking well of him. He reads the book of Isaiah, chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, which we read. But if we look carefully, the passage that we read earlier and comparing it to the book of Isaiah, and you compare what Luke says Jesus said, we realize Jesus didn't finish the verse. Jesus didn't read all of Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. But he goes on to proclaim that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And if the Spirit of the Lord is upon him, that makes Jesus the king. Because that's what the whole... The, I'm being anointed. The word Messiah means the anointed one. The Messiah is the king, the, the, coming, the, the promised coming king. And if the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, if he's anointed me, I'm going to be the king of Israel. Who would have thought one of our own, Joe's kid, who would have thought Joe's kid would have been like the dad of the king of Israel? They're elated about this. They're overwhelmed. Wow, Nazareth is actually going to be on the map someday. Jesus goes on to say, he's, he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. We saw the video earlier. The poor really means the outcasts, uh, uh, the ones who have lower positions in society, those on the outside. It's not just wealth, it's socioeconomic, but it's also social. Uh, um, uh, tax collectors are on the outside because they, 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 they conspire with Rome. Secondly, he's going to proclaim release to the captives. And that's, of course, good news for all of us because we're captives of Rome. Rome is in power and they're holding their, their, their nasty, dirty little finger over us and we can't do anything. We pay taxes and then we can't even make a good living because every time we do, Rome just increases our taxes. We hate Rome. And so he's going to give us release from the captives and then recovery of sight to the blind. And fourthly, uh, he's going to release the, the, the oppressed and the downtrodden and then he's going to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. This is good news. This is great news. In fact, it's one of our own that's going to do it. And then we go to verse 21. Uh, again, uh, today the scriptures fulfilled in your hearing and all spoke well of him and they were amazed at his gracious words that came from his lips and they said, isn't this Joseph's son? Um, but let's compare now for a second because something's going to turn. Let's go look at Isaiah 61 again. All right, and we read it earlier in the service, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. You might note those last two phrases are omitted by Jesus. In the Gospel of Luke, it says, he stops at to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He, does, he leaves out the day of vengeance of our God and to comfort all who mourn. But nonetheless, as your six-year-old granddaughter comes up and quotes you know, the Gospel of John 3.16 and, and leaves out that last part, we all know what they meant. They just forgot that last verse. It's okay, no problem. This is Jesus. He's the Messiah. And it's one of, Joe's, one of our own. It's Joseph's kid. This is good news. And then Jesus goes on. And he seems to actually incite them. Verse 23. He says, Surely you'll quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. 
And you'll tell me too here in your hometown what we heard that you did in Capernaum. Which, by the way, is like, what are you talking about, Jews? They're like, they love you right now. But he seems to be inciting them. Truly, I tell you, he says, no prophet's accepted in his hometown. Which doesn't make sense, because they're loving on Jesus. He says, I tell you the truth, I, uh, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut up for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, them being Israelites. But Elijah was sent to Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And we have a picture of where Sidon is. Sidon's way up there. Zarephath is a city just below Sidon. Notice it's way outside of Galilee. It's way outside of the confines of the Jewish world. Uh, Elijah was sent to a Gentile, not to the people of Israel. Verse 27. There were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only in the Ammon, the Syrian. We'll go back to the map here, and Syria is up there even farther outside the realm of Israel. A prophet's not welcome in his hometown. You want me to do all these miracles, and you're sorry I'm not going to do that, because guess what? I'm going to be like Elijah and Elisha. And they didn't go to the Jewish people. They went to the Gentiles. Verse 28 now. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill in which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. What is the this of verse 28? When the, they were furious when they heard this. They were furious when they heard that Elijah and Elisha were sent to Gentiles and that's what Jesus seems to say he's going to do. Now we begin to realize why he omitted the last part of Isaiah 61. Because the day of vengeance of our God is a day of vengeance on our enemies. If it's released for us, the captives, it's justice against Rome. But Jesus omitted the day of vengeance of our God. And we didn't have a problem with it until we realized what he was actually getting at. What? You want to include them? No, this is for us, not them. They're the bad guys. We're the good guys. All of a sudden, the kingdom of God is not what they were expecting. It's, it's not what they wanted. So the question becomes, what happens when the good news comes, but it's not actually what you wanted to hear? They spoke well of him because they thought he was a prophet, the Messiah, who would meet them on their terms. Once Jesus showed a different agenda, the people turned. So the question for us is, what kind of things would have we assumed are part of the kingdom of God? That if Jesus came into this church, into our lives, into our, 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 our realm, and said, sorry, that's not going to work. Will we be willing to abandon it, or will we run them off a cliff? Sorry, I want you to do this instead. Will we be willing to do that, or will we run them off a cliff? What's interesting is there are many examples in the Scriptures, and let me run through several of them, uh, in which the disciples thought, even the disciples, the ones following Jesus, they thought the kingdom of God meant this, and Jesus has to explain, no, it means this. They had a false understanding of the kingdom of God. Let me give you some examples. Mark chapter 8, 
verses 29 through 31. Jesus continued questioning the disciples by saying, Who do you say that I am? So Peter answered, You're the Christ. And Jesus Jesus warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and three days rise again. Verse 32. He was stating the matter plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's interest. I'm the Messiah. Who do you think I am? Well, you're the Christ. Exactly. The word Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. The word Messiah means the anointed one. It means I'm the king. Great. Now, let me explain the way this is going to work. I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be killed. No, 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 Jesus. That's not the kind of king we want. We're not going to let that happen, Jesus. Get behind me, Satan. Your conception of a king and what you want is what the devil is influencing. This is the kind of king I'm going to be. We go on. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Another example. When the days were approaching for his ascension, his being of Jesus again, Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem, and he, he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and they entered a village of the Samaritans. And if you know the story, Samaritans and Jews don't get along. So Jesus goes into a Samaritan village to make arrangements for him, but the Samaritans did not receive Jesus because he was traveling to Jerusalem. So verse 54, when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call fire to come down from heaven and devour these people? But he turned on them and rebuked them and said, You don't know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. The Samaritans are our enemies, Jesus, and if they're not going to receive you, and, you know, I mean, we're, we're going to put, we can, we can call fire down from them and we'll just wipe them out. That's the kind of kingdom we want. We want a kingdom like Elijah had, where Elijah could call fire down from heaven and just devour his enemies. That's the kind of king we want. And Jesus is like, no, no, again, you don't know what kind of spirit you're of. It's not the way my kingdom works. Another example Mark chapter 10. Verse 32. Jesus and his disciples were going on a road from, uh, to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed. Those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside, and he began to tell them what was going to happen to him. Saying, we're going to go to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, that's me, will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They're going to condemn him to death. They're going to hand him over to the Gentiles. They'll mock him, spit on him, scourge him, and kill him. And three days later, he'll rise again. The very next verse, 35. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. He said, well, what do you want me to do for you? They said, well, grant that we may sit on your right and on your left in your glory. Now, I'm going to stop for a second. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and here's what they're going to do. They're going to beat me. They're going to mock me. They're going to scourge me. They're going to spit on me. They're going to kill me. Hey, Jesus, I'm sorry to hear all that, but I've got a favor to ask of you. I mean, pity party and all that you're having, I'm sorry to interrupt it, but can we have a favor? When we get to Jerusalem, can my brother and I, can we sit on your right and on your left? What are they talking about? Well, when we go to Jerusalem, you're going to be the king. And we want to sit on the right and on the left of the king. Don't you understand what I'm talking about? 
Jesus continues on, verse 38. He said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup? And the word cup often is a figure of speech for suffering. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said, oh, absolutely, we're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right and on my left, that's not mine to give. It's for those for whom it's been prepared. You see, the people on his right and on his left, when Jesus is crowned king, are on crosses. That's not for mine to give. The Father's already appointed who is going to sit on my right and on my left. You will suffer the suffering that I'm suffering, and it will happen someday. But you see, you think you're going to sit on thrones, and actually what you're asking for is, can you sit on crosses? Sorry, I can't give that away. The Father's already ordained who there's going to be. They misunderstand who he is, what kind of king is all about. One of my favorite stories is in the Gospel of Luke, tw- chapter 22 now. Luke chapter 22, verse 20. In the same way, this is the Last Supper, it says, Jesus took the cup after they had eaten, and he said, This cup which is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of the one who is betraying me is with, me on the, with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is, uh, is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them might be who it was who was going to, to, who was going to do this thing. And their very next verse, there arose a dispute among them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. The Last Supper. They're starting to get a little bit of an idea that something bad's going to happen. This is my body broken for you. This is the cup of the blood, the, the blood of the covenant poured out for you. Hey, I'm better than you. Seriously. I know I'm greater than you. I mean, seriously. I was the one that got out of the boat and walked on water. Yeah, but Peter, you sunk. Well, I mean, I was afraid of the wind, but at least I got out of the boat. You stayed in the boat. Were you there when, when Jesus raised that little girl? No, me and James and John were. But I, See, by the way, I think the dispute happened because I don't think Peter was sitting next to Jesus. At the Last Supper, and, and in that culture, the way, where you sit tells you your status. And apparently, Peter was not next to Jesus. But we all know Peter was the most important disciple. And I, it doesn't tell us this, but I'm reading into the text a little bit, but play with me, if you will, for a moment. I think Peter was saying, I'm the greatest and you all know it. Peter, I'm going to die. I'm still better than them. As long as we pursue Jesus on our own terms, we will never find him. As long as we pursue Jesus on our own terms, we'll never find him. I mentioned in the last several weeks that uh, religion is, uh, always has an effort to find some way to save ourselves. Right? And the problem with religion is, of course, is that we actually can't save ourselves. We made the mess. We're actually not capable of fixing it. If religion were about my doing good deeds and somehow being saved, there's a problem, and that is, what happens to my bad deeds? If God just let me in because I'm a good person, I'm, I'm, at least I'm better than that person, then God would be unjust because He's not punishing my bad deeds. If religion were about being perfect... And that's how you get in. Well, it still has the problem of what happened to all my bad deeds before I became perfect. But there's another problem, and that is, we can't be perfect. I'm not perfect. I know you think it. I um, No, my wife's not here, so I can say that. (laughs) Uh, I'm not perfect. And we're never going to be perfect. We're like 
religion because it suggests that we can, we can do it on our own terms. We can have our cake and we can eat it too. I can get to go to heaven and I can live however I want now. One of the harshest statements of Jesus, one of the most difficult statements of Jesus occurs in the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 7, verse 21. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, we did not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. These are people who are, are doing all these things in the name of Jesus. They're, they're casting out demons. They're, they're working many miracles. They're even prophesying in His name. And His answer is, I don't know who you are. Because you see, I think their accepting of Jesus was on their terms. And they had added religion so they can go to heaven when they die, but they could go ahead and live however they wanted down here on earth. And they just sprinkled religion on the top. I read my Bible once in a while. I went to church once in a while. I put some money in the offering plate once in a while. And I even taught Sunday school classes. But I never really changed. I never really figured out who this Jesus was. And I never really took his challenge that if you want to be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. Okay? Now, the very next verse that we just read, Matthew 7, 21-23, the very next verse I think clarifies things. Verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And it fell, and great was its fall. The rock is Jesus. The, the ones I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness, are the ones who didn't found their, their establishment on, on Jesus. They didn't allow Jesus to be the one who makes the decisions. They didn't allow Jesus to be the one who says, this is the way it works. Instead, they wanted Jesus to be the king and us to sit on his right and on his left and, 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 and to reap the benefits of him being the king instead of realizing that his kind of kingdom is a way of bearing a cross. Oh, I don't want that kind of kingdom. I'm out. As long as Jesus was for three years going around the countryside and healing people and saying nice things like love your neighbor and, 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 and doing that, then he's easy to follow. Lord, Jesus, have mercy on what has happened on the outside. We pray your blessings upon them now and, and your grace in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. He's easy to follow as long as he's doing those things. Once he goes to the cross, now it's game on. Now things change. And you might notice that there were hundreds. Lord, again, we continue to pray for whatever is happening out there that uh, you'll help lives to be spared and lives to be saved, protect the law enforcement officials, protect the uh, uh, firemen and ambulance drivers, whatever it may be, and may you bring health and healing and safety and all and the knowledge of Jesus Christ to that situation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
All of a sudden now, you see at the beginning of his ministry, for the, the three years of his ministry, he had hundreds following him. In fact, at one point he had 5,000 following him and he had to feed them all. But when you get to the cross, there's only two. Even of the 12, the rest scattered. They kind of come back a little bit. And then shortly thereafter, there's 500 in a room upstairs. But the thousands have gone. So as we survey this Gospel of Luke and we ask ourselves this question, who is this man? We have to stop by saying, are we going to see this Jesus and make him fit our terms? Or are we going to accept this Jesus on his terms? Let's pray. Father, it's with joy that we come and recognize that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And though the way of the cross is hard and difficult and arduous, you told us that it's not by might nor by power, but by your Spirit that we can do all things. And that we can do all things through Christ Jesus who gives us strength. And so now we realize this hard, arduous, difficult task is actually made easy if we simply cast our burdens upon you. At the same time, we're still a little fearful because we kind of are comfortable we're comfortable in our nice homes. We're comfortable with our jobs. We're comfortable with the wealth we have. We're comfortable because most of us eat pretty well. And we kind of worry whether you're going to ask us to give up some of those things or not. And Lord, we do. We surrender it all. All we have is yours. Because you're the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we realize... But the way of the kingdom of God is the way of love and the way of sacrifice and the way of surrender. And so, Lord, here we are. We surrender all. Right now, in the quiet of this room, Lord, we ask that you would convict us of whatever it is, whether it's a belief or a conviction or a practice or whether it's materialism or whatever it is, where we've just kind of embraced that and you. And you're asking us to surrender it. And may we surrender it. That you might have it all. That great hymn, All to Thee I freely give, I surrender all. May that be the prayer of our hearts this morning, Lord. And may you receive our worship and be glorified. In the name of our Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.